From the Annals of Thoracic Surgery and the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, welcome to Beyond the Abstract, part of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Surgical Hot Topics series. I'm Tom Varghese, a thoracic surgeon and deputy editor of Digital Media and Digital Scholarship for the Annals. This is a podcast all about the why behind the articles and the issues in cardiothoracic surgery and healthcare, and what are the planned next steps from authors and thought leaders in the field. We're glad that you are here. If you enjoy our program, please rate our podcast on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you downloaded this podcast. Your feedback is appreciated. Please remember, the opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the individuals and not necessarily of SDS. Surgical care is essential for managing diverse clinical conditions, ranging from traumatic injuries to cancer to obstructed labor to infection to something like cardiovascular disease. To get an idea of the impact of surgical care around the world, think of these numbers. In 2004, there were an estimated 234.2 million operations performed around the world, and this number grew to 312.9 million operations in 2012. There is no question surgical volume continues to grow and is critical to achieve the best outcomes for patients. However, there is a downside. Surgery causes pain during and after the procedure. Despite improved understanding of pain mechanisms, increased awareness of the prevalence of post-surgical pain, advances in pain management approaches, and focus initiatives at improving pain-related outcomes, pain sadly continues to be a widespread, unresolved healthcare problem. Additionally, one of the major concerns is the ongoing opioid epidemic. Increasing addiction without any resolution of pain. In the world of thoracic surgery, there is thus a major need to develop a patient-centered approach to assess pain, identify predictors of pain interference, and develop robust education and support interventions. This is why the recently published systematic review by Dr. Lisa Brown and colleagues from the University of California Davis Health System is incredibly timely and important. In today's Beyond the Abstract podcast, we connect with Dr. Brown on this vital work to discuss both where we are and where we need to go. Join us as we go Beyond the Abstract. Dr. Lisa Brown is an assistant professor in general thoracic surgery at UC Davis in Sacramento. Uh, She's a genius. She's an amazing innovator uh, and is one of the rising superstars in the field. But uh, Dr. Brown, do you want to go ahead and fill in any color commentary and anything I missed in that introduction? No, that was, uh, that was more than generous, Tom. Thank you very much. Perfect. Well, um, obviously the goal today is to talk about your most uh, review, uh, recent uh, review article, uh, looking at chronic pain and opioid use after thoracic surgery. Um, in your comprehensive goal, your goal uh, review, your goal is stated to provide a review of chronic pain and opioid use after thoracic surgery discuss gaps in knowledge and opportunities for research to fill those gaps. For our listeners, can you explain how you got interested in the topic? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, I was, I was told by a mentor a long time ago that the best research and even quality improvement ideas basically come from the patients we see every day. Sometimes you just have that moment where you're interacting with a patient or you're watching something unfold in the way that your healthcare system works and you think, wait a minute, could we be doing it differently or could we be doing it better? And that happened one time when I was 
uh, got started, you know, five years ago at UC Davis and was seeing patients. And, and overall, I would explain to my patients uh, who are undergoing lung cancer surgery, I would say, well, this is what to expect. These are the possible complications that you may have. And, you know, and the patients would just kind of look at me and, and say, well, you know, I'm going to be asleep for all that. And so, you know, just do what you need to do to get the cancer out. And uh, what is my recovery going to look like? And so I went to the literature and I thought, you know, there's a lot of data on health-related quality of life after lung cancer surgery, but I'm not sure how much of it pertains to my patients or how much of it is current. And so that, that sparked my initial interest. Uh, so, was the, so it was the health quality of life aspect that really drove it, not more that you had a lot of chronic pain patients in your practice, correct? Correct. But I did have one patient that really um, drove it home even further for me, and he was a a seven-year-old man who had a chest wall tumor. And I try to get to know my patients a little bit about them. It helps me uh, you know, get to know them and understand where they're coming from and how to maybe even better take care of them. He told me he was going to retire soon and that he was planning to go up north to a cabin and he was going to do all these outdoors activities uh, that were pretty physical. And so I resected his tumor. Everything went fine. And according to all the metrics that we, that we collect in the STS General Thoracic Surgical Database, you know, his, his uh, operation was a success right? A plus. Well, he came back to see me in six months and he said, he didn't say much. He was very quiet. He was a quiet guy. And I said, but there's no recurrence on the CT scan. Everything looks great. And I almost ended the visit, but then I just, I had more time and I asked him how he was doing, how he was, uh, how his retirement was going and was he doing all the things he planned on doing? And he said, no, and I said, well, why not? And he said, because I still have pain. This is six months later. Six months. Wow. Six months. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, if I had not asked him about it, he would not have volunteered that information. And we're not capturing any of this data on a, on a routine basis in our database, in our national database. And then I thought, you know, we're really missing a huge component of outcomes uh, a huge fracture, what goes on out there in the patient's minds and what, what's their perspective. So so that's where it all began, to be honest. That, that's amazing. So in other words, if you don't seek it, you'll never find it or you'll never know what you're not seeking for, You know, correct? Correct. I mean, I'm a data-driven person, clinical researcher, health services researcher, and I'm all about the data and, you know, we can't really analyze the data that we don't have or we don't know how to collect or we don't even know what to ask. Even know what to ask. That's amazing. Uh, you know, you start in the review, um, which I thought, uh, again, for the listeners, I am unbelievably biased. I thought this was a phenomenal article, probably one of the, the must-read articles of this past year. But I love the way that how you started by let's talk about the standardized definition for chronic post-surgical pain because pain is this you know, panacea or, you know, it's kind of, it captures a whole spectrum of different things. But you you and your co-authors really went about saying that it's pain developed after a surgical procedure, 
pain of at least two months, so you define a time interval, and then all your other causes of pain are excluded, so no other contributing factors. It's like this is directly related to surgical pain, uh, and specifically excluding the possibility of pain from the pre-existing problem. And that was the way that you guys started this article, and like I said, it was brilliant. Now, historically, all this has been under the umbrella of post-thoracotomy pain. Now that you've finished your review, do you think that term is still accurate? I mean, is it really tied to the thoracotomy procedure, or should we be changing the name to like post-thoracic pain or syndrome? I mean, or what do you think uh, after doing this review? Yeah, I think I think what uh, where I got the definition was basically, and this is a, a plug to the the listeners to go outside of your field when you're doing a literature review. So I think a lot of us will you know, we know other co-authors, we know other researchers, we know the thoracic surgeons, and we, we, we're comfortable with our field and our journals, but you got to look to the other people who are doing this research, and, and that's anesthesia is one. And this is, that is the definition from the International Association for the Study of Pain. And that's a, an anesthesia um, uh, international group who comes up with these definitions, and that's basically where it's from. So I do think in, in reading different papers. Sometimes it's called chronic post-thoracotomy pain syndrome, chronic post-surgical pain, post-thoracic pain, whatever you call it, it's similar. I think the most important thing is if we're going to study it, that we all use the same definition. And so what I thought this definition was, um, was first it was agreed upon by the major experts in the field and that it's two months, it wasn't there before, it's due to the surgery, and there you have it. And if we can all say, you know, use the same definitions when we study these things, then we can compare across our our research. Outstanding. Um, you alluded to earlier uh, in this interview uh, about how it was really about measuring uh, the health-related quality of life. I mean, that was a brilliant example that you said about uh, your, your patient after the chest wall resection. Uh, and you lamented that there's actually only a few reports um, on the impact of pain on health-related quality of life. Um, now, there are some instruments out there, such as the SF36 or the LC13 or the ERTC QLQC30, but in the ideal world, what type of questions would you like to assess in a standardized perspective manner uh, for our listeners? Right, so that's an important question, is million-dollar question, right? What should we really be asking patients? Um, what do we need to know? And so... Those instruments that are available are, they're either generic, but they're good because they're available for, um, and you can use them kind of off the shelf, like the SF36. That's, you can apply that to anybody and compare to the general population. But these, we got to be careful with these EORTC, these cancer-specific ones, because these were mainly uh, validated in patients with stage 3 and stage 4 cancers. You know, for example, the ERTC includes questions on, um, it has questions on do you have numbness or tingling or hair loss and things like that. And you really don't want to put something like that in front of our patients because that's not what they're experiencing, especially if they're not receiving any chemo. So I think ideally we need to use, you know, newer metrics and promise is a great, is a great start. It's developed for this reason. Uh, to measure health-related quality of life in patients. We don't need to validate uh, these PROMISE metrics. Now, when I say PROMISE, that's the Patient Reported Outcomes Measurement Information System that was developed by, by researchers um, and from the National Institutes of Health. It's widely available. You can take these metrics off the shelf 
uh, put them in front of your patients. They're short surveys, either four, six, eight questions, and some of them are computer-adapted tests. And the assessment center to score them is free. And it's important to measure, you know, longitudinal uh, metrics as well. So what for our patients, what we should do is measure baseline quality of life and then post-surgical, perhaps two weeks, two months, six months, uh, and so forth. But what I really want to hit home besides measuring trajectory uh, within a patient on these domains is, is not just the symptoms, but what is the impact on the quality of life? So the one thing I hit home on in that paper is called pain interference. And it's not just measuring who has pain and what numbers are pain on a scale of 1 to 10, but how does that pain impact their life? How does it impact their mood, their relationships with their families and friends, their ability to work, ability to carry out the things that they like to do in life? You know, for example, one, pa- one person's 4 out of 10 pain may be acceptable. To another person, 4 out of 10 pain is devastating. And those are the types of individual that's the type of individual data we need in order to better serve our patients. And that's a brilliant concept. And so in order to correctly measure pain interference, you need that baseline measure of what are the activities that are meaningful to that patient so that then you can figure out if, if pain is interfering with those activities, correct? Exactly. That's the key. It's, you know, the symptoms, how are they impeding your patient's quality of life? That's brilliant. Well, um, you know, after you go through this uh, incredible review and you detail the opioid use definitions, you talk about the risk factors for new persistent opioid use, um, obviously allude to the different prescribing patterns and emerging opioid guidelines, um, your concluding paragraph included the following sentence. Uh, additional research is needed to determine how best to set expectations and provide information regarding expecting pain burden, multimodal analgesia, and appropriate opioid use and risk to patients before surgery, essentially summing up all the information uh, that was detailed in this comprehensive review. And for the listeners out there, uh, Dr. Lisa Brown is, you know, just like a lot of geniuses who are incredible multitaskers, she has a master's of advanced study degree in clinical research. So using that background, Dr. Brown, I would like to ask you, what are the ideal types of future research studies that we should conduct uh, to to help really provide our patients with this needed information? Yeah, thanks, Tom. There's uh, There's a lot of work to be done here, a huge amount, and so there's plenty of opportunity. It involves us as thoracic surgeons, I think, getting outside of our comfort zone a little bit because we're really good at database work, and a lot of this this type of information that what we need to be doing is not in databases. So to tell you about the opioid use, you know, you can get a large database and study what our thoracic surgical patients are doing around the time of surgery and the prescriptions that they're taking because that's all in the databases, but really these patient reported outcomes, the pain measures, they're not always there. And so there's a few things we need to do. Uh, And one is we need to think about healthcare delivery right now. So right now, think about what we do. We have relatively short preoperative visits. Patients show up on the day of surgery. They have their operation, and enhanced recovery after surgery and early discharge is really the focus right now. Some patients, some patients are going home post-up day one from lobectomy. We're also under pressure to limit our opioid prescribing. Then the patient sits at home with maybe 20 pills in their hand thinking, well, this must be the right amount because this is what my doctor prescribed. And then 
who knows if they're in pain because we're not really measuring that. And then if they ask for a refill, we give them a refill, but we're nervous because, uh, you know, federal institutions are, are watching us. And then the primary care doctor is afraid to prescribe too many medications. And I think it's just creating uh, a system that is not is not in a good place right now for patient-centered care for pain control around the time of surgery. I just want to go back to a paper that was in the New England Journal of Medicine that I highlighted in my review from 1964. And it was, it was exciting because what they showed was that the patients were admitted the day prior to surgery. That was, that was back then when they could admit patients the day prior to surgery and uh, give them a lot of information the night before. In the control arm, they just told them about logistics of surgery the next day. And in the intervention arm, they taught patients not only the logistics, but what to expect, what the pain was going to feel like, how they could control it with breathing techniques. Very simple. And the patients in the intervention arm use about half as many narcotics as the patients in the control arm. And so it was pointed out back then, we just talk to patients and provide them with simple information and some simple things to do. We may be able to uh, give them, empower them with the ability to kind of manage some of their own pain and not be um, in the dark, so to speak. So we need to take some of the healthcare delivery and put it online, but we need to control the content of it, but with input from the patients. Because that, that's incredible. Ni- 1964. <laughs> that's incredible. It wow. was an amazing study. It was, and, and it's to quote something from there, they said, they said, quote, uh, each patient has his or her own personal physiologic makeup, and each patient needs special treatment tailored to meet his or her own psychological needs. Well, that's patient-centered care defined in 1964. It, that's uh, amazing. <laughs> and they also said, many reports have discussed the treatment of patients suffering after operation. Narcotics are not without danger. They also vary, vary considerably in effectiveness. So, you know, history repeats itself. <laughs> this is like... <laughs> no, um, that's incredible. <laughs> no, that's yeah, brilliant. I mean, that, no, thank you for that. That's a brilliant citation. And Wow. <laughs> well, when I stumbled across it, I thought, this is, this is okay, this is, they already had this figured out, and how come we're not doing it? <laughs> yeah, and that, that I, is absolutely amazing. Know, it's 2020. You can control your life on your iPhone. You have apps for everything. Why can't we create a user-friendly, perioperative app for patients? But the key thing is, it can't really be primarily driven by industry or us, we need to take the patient's input and say, what do you need? What This is where the qualitative research comes in. How should we That's create this content? How should we present it to you in a way that you are interested in, in participating? That's that's incredible. Well, Dr. Brown, I mean, you and I could be talking for hours on this. It's always an incredible joy to talk to you and connect with you on these type of topics. But uh, do you have any final thoughts uh, for our listeners? No, I just think the key the key things that that we need to do are we need to measure, you know, longitudinal data. We need to pick outcomes that are pertinent to the patients, they need to tell us what they want to measure, and that's where the qualitative research comes in. And then really focusing on how the post-operative symptoms, pain, shortness of breath, uh, and those types of things, how are they really impacting their daily life? Beautifully stated. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time, and uh, thank you for all that you do. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. 
Join us next time as we continue to explore and debate issues beyond the abstract, part of the Surgical Hot Topic series. You can connect with the Annals of Thoracic Surgery online at annalsthoracicsurgery.org or on Twitter at Annals Thor Surge.